And this morning, we're gonna welcome back an old friend, uh, Dom Russo. I'm just gonna ask him to come up uh, on stage here. Let's give him a Bayview Glen welcome as he comes. Dom was here about uh, this same time last year and he came and talked to us about kind of an exciting new venture that he was about to uh, embark on in terms of uh, starting a church in Laval. And so uh, I'm just actually gonna give him, a, he's, he's actually doing that right now with his wife and kids. I'm gonna turn it over to him to give us a little bit of an update. Thanks, and uh, it's great. great, it's so to great back. to be here. Good to be back. Thank you. It's good to be back, everyone. It's, this is exciting. How many of you were here last time I was here? Just curious. Yeah, great. Some of you remember a bit of our story. Some people up there now, that's cool. Uh, my wife and I actually were living in Sarnia, Ontario. Some of you know where that is. I know it's not the magical place called Narnia. It's Sarnia. Uh, and I was a pastor of a church there, and we had been there for a few years, and God started to stir in us this, this slow calling to go and do something that I never thought I would do. And if you're in a place, you know, you have those prayers, you're like, God, I'm never doing this, I'm never doing that. This would be on the list. I'm never planting a church. And my wife said she'd never live in Quebec. So guess what we're doing? planting a church in Quebec. So it's a funny thing that God has kind of transitioned our heart and prepared us, and we are in what's called the pre-launch phase of our church plant. That it's usually means that you spend six months, sometimes a year, of preparing leaders, finding a space, raising funds, uh, connecting with partners to prepare for the launch. And so I'm just so excited to be here to tell you that a year has almost gone by and God is slowly walking with us and helping us and showing us our next step. Although I'd like to see the next 10 years ahead of me, he's showing us just one step ahead and, and we're learning how to trust him. And, and the name of the church is called The 180. You'll just see a, a slide of that up there, the180.ca. If you wanna go online and check out our stuff, add us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever you use. Uh, the name 180 captures this beautiful biblical picture of what repentance means. The word repentance means to turn, and that Jesus still is turning people's lives around, and that we want to be a church that invites people to believe that Jesus can turn things around in their life, and that he loves them. And so we're in the process of, of you know, moving towards our official launch date. So if you remember anything about uh, our church in Quebec, and, and just, just maybe you're a praying person, and you, you're a person who has a list of things you want to pray for, I'm going to invite you to put September 18th on that list. What day? September 18th. September 18th is our official launch day for the 180. Uh, it's our official launch where we're going to be going to our regular gatherings and our regular services and trying to get some of our ministries going so we can serve our community, and it, it, it's a real challenging thing. And so when Pastor Lucas had called and we connected and he asked me if I'd, you know, be interested in being able to come and share and be part of this psalm series, it was really meaningful because the psalm that I'm going to be sharing uh, about really had a lot to help navigate and help me in the season that we're in as a church or pre-church, like you like call it, right? Uh, the, the, the season of just trusting God when things feel clunky, messy, unsure, and yet knowing that God is there that God has called us, but wondering, are we doing the right thing here? Is this really what you want us to do? Or are we making the right choices? And so many of the Psalms, as, as you know, are this invitation from God to help us to see him in a new way, to help us understand him in a new way. And unfortunately, over the years, especially if you've gone to church or uh, you know, maybe you've been in church a long time, if you're new this morning, you're visiting, maybe you're kind of starting off Following Jesus is still very new, you're not sure. Maybe you're watching online. This is something that you probably don't know, but there's some subtle challenge that we face in churches, 
And here's the challenge, that oftentimes many people who start to come to church or start to follow Jesus or start to believe in God, begin the journey believing that once they start to follow Jesus, their lives are going to magically become amazing. They're going to follow Jesus and guess what's going to happen to them? They're going to become rich, right? I know none of you believe that, but you're lying. No, so, no, or you, you know, I'm going to follow Jesus, this is right, and then I'm going to find the right person to marry. Or I'm going to follow Jesus and Jesus is going to fix my husband. Ladies? All right, you got some of that, okay? You have this idea that Jesus is going to make things better. And there's some truth to that. There's a sense of wholeness and peace. And there's promises that come. And this new understanding of love. But the other part that we also don't obviously tell people is that there's actually some messiness and brokenness and scary parts. Because we believe that following Jesus means that the riskiness and all of the scary parts of our faith somehow will magically go away. So we're introduced to Jesus as the person who makes our lives safe and comfortable. And everybody wants that Jesus. And then we read our Bible. And you're like, wait a second. Like this is a different thing than I thought was going to happen. And we begin to wrestle with, wait, am I in this for the right reasons? Like is this really what I want to do? And the Psalms are this beautiful place, I mean, the middle of our Bible almost, these prayers, these songs that introduce us to a way of following God, a way of understanding who Jesus is, that kind of pushes back against some of the experiences that we want or we get in our culture about things being great. Eugene Peterson, who's, I mean, he's a brilliant writer, he's, he's a Semitic scholar who's done a lot of work on, on the Psalms, and some of you know maybe from, from the Message Bible. This is, this is what he says in, in one of his, his commentaries. He says, our job is not to solve people's problems or make them happy, but to help them see grace operating in, in their lives. There's this invitation that although we're tempted to make everything come together and everything work, I hope you like this, I hope you like that, all these things. The truth is, is that Jesus invites us to see his hand at work even when things are clunky and messy and broken. And this morning, I want to invite you to go with me to a psalm called Psalm 143. You can follow in the Bible or you can, you'll see some of the passages on the screen behind me. And it's a psalm that introduces us to the time in the season of a leader in the Bible. His name is David, where he's struggling through incredible challenges and he's going to work through this psalm. And one of the things I want to encourage you to realize is that these psalms are these incredible prayers that David, in this context we know the writer, his name is David, but some of the psalms we actually don't know who wrote them. And in this psalm, we're going to be introduced to this tension and this incredible season of confusion for David. He's really going to be struggling and he's going to be wrestling with this. But oftentimes, what many people don't realize, as you might not know this, but the psalms are the Bible of Jesus. The psalms are actually the prayer book that Jesus uses. So imagine when we read the psalms, we're learning how to pray the way Jesus learned to pray. We're actually learning how to sing and to talk to the Father and to learn about the Father the way Jesus would have done that as he was growing up. And so there's a beautiful invitation that we have as we go to these, these psalms, these songs, and say, God, help us. Remember that most people in the ancient world can't read. Okay, remember that. So they're not like opening up their Bible and reading their psalms. Like they're not doing that. I know we think that that's what's happening, but that's not happening. Okay? What most people are doing, and that's why the Psalms are so beautifully crafted, especially in the Hebrew and in the original language, is that they're actually songs that people can sing. So they don't really have to know how to read. But they can sing and live the Psalms every day. Just like when you're driving in your car, right? You can start to sing a song or sing a hymn that you love. It would have been similar to have the Psalms just playing in your mind and in your heart 
as these living words of God, like there with you. And some of the psalms you can sing as like really exciting, joyful, great songs. And others like this psalm is like a bit tough to sing. It's a bit more challenging to feel like, wow, how do I trust God in the midst of a really difficult, difficult time? And the topic that David's going to address in the psalm is a topic that affects everyone at some point in their lives. You could be rich. You could be a leader. You could be a great dad. You can be, you know, or you might be a student, a teenager. No matter where you're at, there's a theme that weaves its way, it weaves its way through some of the psalms, and specifically this psalm that I want to talk about, and it's that theme of loneliness. The theme of really feeling that everything around you is falling apart and that nobody else understands. It's this loneliness that grips our heart. And oftentimes in church, we're really not sure what to do with that loneliness. And at the beginning of the psalm, this is what we're introduced to by David. This is what he says, Lord, hear my prayer and listen to my cry for mercy. And in your faithfulness and righteousness, come to my relief. David's like, I'm going through something that I never thought I would go through. What's happening is overwhelmingly painful. And Lord, time and time again, you invite us to come to you with these requests. I mean, if you're new to maybe Christianity or you're, you're maybe just starting off or have walked away from church, this introduction to the psalm states one of the most radical teachings of Christianity. So radical that we miss it. We're just like, hey, that's a great verse. It's that Christians have always believed that the God that they serve is a God that listens. Pretty incredible. That a God who doesn't need us, really, uh, you know, not only does he not need us, after creating us, we kind of have messed the whole thing up, as some of you know, right? All of these issues, but God says, I'm still the God that listens. Some of you are here this morning, and you don't believe that anymore. You don't believe that God listens. You believe that God listens to other people. God might listen to the pastor, or he'll listen to like David. Or he'll listen to someone else. But he doesn't listen to you. And you believe that because you've been trying to talk to God. You've been trying to get his attention. You've been trying to pray. You've been trying to ask him to relieve a certain situation that he's supposed to fix. That's what he does. And what he's inviting you to see instead is that his grace and his presence is with you even when you think he's not there. And if we're not careful, just like David is going to feel is that because we don't hear God's voice, because we don't experience it right away, the relief that we want when we want it, we start to slowly believe that, wait a second, I thought God was going to make things better and things were going to get fixed. You know what? I know God just doesn't listen to me. That's the kind of God that Christians believe in. And so the Psalms push back on that and say, wait a second, wait a second. For thousands of years... Others who have followed God and who have followed in the ways of Jesus have said, you need to remember this, that no matter what you're going through, no matter what relief you need, God is the God who hears the cries of his people. And he invites us into this conversation. And then David does something very, very unique that's common in the Psalms, and he, and he addresses this issue in the next section. This is what he says. The enemy pursues me. He crushes me to the ground. He makes me dwell in the darkness like those long dead. So my spirit grows faint within me. My heart within me is dismayed. David introduces us to an issue in the Psalms that I, I personally think gives me the most problems. I have the most problem with this, so if it's going to be confession time. If you've ever read the Psalms or if you invite somebody to read the Psalms for the first time, they're going to land on this word enemy a lot. 
And you realize you're like enemy, enemy. Like how does that really translate in our lives? Like who is the enemy? Like how, how do we work through this idea that for David is very tangible? An enemy is a person. Right? Especially since those of us who understand that the Psalms will become fully fulfilled in the life of Jesus and in the message of Jesus, who says, pray and what? Love your enemies. We're caught in this tension of David saying, God, these enemies are pursuing me. You have to crush them and you have to get rid of them in my life because I don't know what to do here. You, you kind of should feel, you should feel that, that clash. You should feel like, yeah, that's kind of weird. How do we work that out? So I want to encourage you to think about what are the things in your life that are enemies that come and counter the ways of Jesus in your life. Sometimes it's not like a person. Sometimes it's not an actual uh, person you can think of, but it's actually a way of life or uh, an idea or a habit or something that you're doing that very much is an enemy of the ways of God. Now, I know many, many people in church, Christians are famous for this, that whenever they go through a difficult time, they look for someone to blame. You know people like that? Okay, one of my sons, my youngest son, I'm a dad of three, my youngest son, his name is Isaac, he's going to be six years old soon, uh, and, and every time I catch him doing something, like I actually see him doing something, I'm like, Isaac, did you just punch your brother in the face? No. I'm like, but Isaac, like I saw you punching your brother in the face, that it wasn't me. It wasn't me. So he started, he was at that age where he couldn't understand that if dad is over there, even though I'm not in the room, I could still see that you did something you shouldn't do, right? So now he's starting to understand that. So now when he does something that he shouldn't do, he has a new line that he uses. He'll say, it wasn't me, it was my brother. It wasn't me, dad. I was, and I'm like, no, buddy, it was you. I saw you. Or he'll say, I don't remember. I don't remember who did it. I'm like, how can you not remember? It happened like 30 seconds ago. Dad, I don't remember. It's fascinating, right? You watch this and you, you, you realize that when you're a child, you, you have this mechanism to just blame other people for all of the issues that are around you. It's someone else's fault. It's not my fault. And over time, as a pastor, one of the things I've realized is that many Christians do the same thing in their lives. Whenever something happens that they should take responsibility for, guess who they blame? The devil. It's the devil's fault. So the devil made you marry that person. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The it was him. I remember. Oh, right. Oh. So the devil made you spend all of that money on useless stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, the devil, yeah. He works at the mall. He's there all the time. Like, all of, all of these ideas, I'm like, whenever that happens, I just want to rip my hair out. Because as a pastor, I meet with people all the time, especially if you're a teenager here, if you're young, you have young kids. I meet with parents, and they're like, oh, my kids are doing this, they're doing that, they're selling drugs, they're all kind. I'm like, wow. And I'll always say this. So how do you think this kind of started? And parents are like confused, right? Like, I, I don't remember. I don't remember what happened. I'm like, oh, okay. So I said, do you think you play any part as a parent in how things are turning out with your kids? No, no, no. So who did this? Guess who did it? The devil. I'm like, wow. And oftentimes, we never get honest about the way the enemy works in teaching us to practice or live a way of life that is totally against the ways of the kingdom of God and the ways of Jesus. And so we read Psalms like this and like, oh, the enemy, David has an enemy, but I'm good. Everything's fine. Or someone we don't like. But we need to do a better job at saying, God, some of the ways of the enemy have gripped my own heart, my own habits, my own way of thinking, and they're not your ways. The way I think about my resources, the way I think about 
people in my family, the way I talk about my coworkers, the way I use my words. That's, in a sense, the way the enemy works today. That's maybe different than the way David had to think about enemy. Because I want to tell you, David's enemy is not just this ideal of the devil. For David, the enemy he's going to talk about and the person he's asking God to help him with is someone he loves dearly. In this psalm, most scholars tell us that as David is working through the psalm, he's navigating one of the most dangerous and difficult times of his life. Because his son named Absalom has decided that he wants to take over everything that David has. That he's decided that his father David needs to move on and that he is the one who should really be the king. And in 2 Samuel, we get a glimpse of how messy this situation is. This is what we're told. A messenger soon arrived in Jerusalem to tell David something. All Israel has joined Absalom in a conspiracy against you. Then we must flee at once or it will be too late, David urged his men. Hurry. If we get out of the city before Absalom arrives, both we and the city of Jerusalem will be spared from disaster. Like, I don't care how bad your family situation is. None of us have to deal with a crazy son that's ready like to kill his father. It would be like me going home and talking to my son. He's like, Dad, tomorrow I'm going to burn the house down. I'm just going to burn our house down. Are you okay with that? I'm like, yeah, sure. It'll be fine. Like, just think about how crazy it would be for David to be like, my son, the one that I love, is conspiring against me. Well, I'm the leader. Nobody's going to really follow him. Nobody's going to really mess with me. I'm David. And then to get word, hey, by the way, a lot of people are with Absalom. And David realizes that there's only one thing to do. I must pray. And we get these psalms of this broken, scary, confusing. David's like, if you don't deal with this God. And how do you pray for God to address an enemy that you love? How do you pray for God to deal with a situation that is so connected to your family? And David has to work through this issue and ask God to help him with this son who's pretty much, like I said in the last service, like Absalom is a psycho, like craziness. And this is something that as a dad, probably David's like the most embarrassed he's ever been in his life. I mean, I have young kids, you know, when you're, you go out with your kids and you're like, you know, we get to the restaurant, don't act crazy, don't punch your brother, you can't throw forks, don't, you know, all these, right? Imagine like, David's like, yeah, Absalom is my son, yeah, yeah, there's no way around it, he's a nuts, he's completely nuts. Like the embarrassment, the violation, just like, are you kidding me? He's doing what? And David's calling on God and he's like, you really have to, you need to help, I have no idea. No idea what's going to happen next. And we're caught in this tension in this story. And this is what David says next. I spread out my hands to you and I thirst for you like a parched land. I'm so dry. He says, answer me quickly, Lord. My spirit fails. There's something about getting to the place where you really feel that no matter how much you've tried to follow God and how much you've tried to be obedient and how much, I mean, you're the king, you're trying to be a good leader, that you get to the place where you're like, everything around me is just failing and falling apart. It really is. And I thought I was doing the right thing. I thought I made good decisions. I thought, God, you were with me. This can't be happening. And you have this moment in the psalm where David really uses, starts to use language where he, he's at the place where loneliness and only he understands what it means to be in this season. 
I mean, there's things that we face in life that are so difficult that even our best friends don't understand. There's things we face in life that we feel like really, really, even if we try to explain them, it just doesn't translate. And I, I shared earlier how planting a church in Quebec, although it's exciting, we feel God's with us, we're, we're seeing God move slowly, and we're trying to be patient and trusting and all of these things. There are days where I am like sitting at my desk and I would be lying if I didn't say that I feel so lonely. I'm like, nobody gets how hard this is. Nobody understands the decisions that I, I, I have to make. I, and in those moments, there's this draw. God's like, I understand. I understand. I'm with you. And, and you feel this gripping your heart. And if you're not careful, those seasons when you feel lonely... If we don't deal with them appropriately, sooner or later move to darker places in our own lives. Where I've, where I've been with people over the years who, who started by feeling like this loneliness that's quickly moved to its place of depression and this overwhelming mental illness. And I find it fascinating that we, the church, were these books full of life, these psalms that invite us into these dark places of which God is present with us. We sometimes have done a horrible job And I speak about myself and other leaders that I know. We've done a horrible job at saying, wait a second. I think the church should be the leading place where we are the ones helping people through these problems. We are the ones that have the legacy of people like David and other writers who have said, you know what? God is with you in these moments. And you need to learn to journey together in these moments. And sometimes you want a quick fix. You want God to come quickly and repair it. And he doesn't. And until we don't learn to go through a season where we teach people that God's grace is there, teaching us something that we can only learn sometimes in those moments, that we quickly get to this other place in our life where we start to experience loneliness, and then we say, you know what? God doesn't listen to people like me. Maybe God's not even real. Maybe this is all a joke. And I know countless people in my family, people that I love, people who live in Quebec, who've slowly gone through that pattern, and now they've walked away. Some of you think of your kids or your grandchildren, and you know, what, you know what that's like. And I think we need to reintroduce to people by going back to the scriptures like this and introduce them to what it, what it looks like when a community takes these emotions and these difficult times seriously and doesn't just turn them into like, you know, like the next really simple phrase, like Jesus is the answer. You ever see that? If you drive and people, I mean, some of you maybe have this on your car as a bumper sticker, right? Jesus is the reason. Je like, it's like these little things. I'm like, really? That's not going to help me next week. It's really not going to help me. We don't do it on purpose, but we turn Christianity into like this simple bumper sticker faith that we could just post on the internet without saying, by the way, after Jesus is the answer, there's a lot of problems that show up. And Jesus is present, but it takes a long time to figure out what the answer is sometimes. I think there's a world out there that's dying to hear a bit about that from the church. There's a world of people there that are like, wow, your Bible talks about this stuff? We're like, yeah, it does. There's these beautiful songs called the Psalms that walk us through these moments. I read an article a while back on this issue of loneliness. And it's written by a secular, in a secular journal. This is what it says, loneliness is killing us. We must start treating this disease, the writer writes. It says, people who are lonely often think that everyone else is doing okay while they are not. They think they are the only ones carrying a burden. It's not about like having a bad day. It's not about being tired. It's not about having, having a vacation. It's about getting to this place where you're like, no one else gets this. 
This is just me. And I can't even tell anyone about this. And loneliness grips our hearts. And we don't even know how to talk about it because Christians are not supposed to feel this, right? Christians are supposed to feel joy and happy and clap and sing, right? That's what we do. And we do do that. And that's okay. But the Psalms are what a great invitation for us to say, hey, hey, the Psalms are like, don't, don't pretend when things are all messed up. David's not like, hey, Absalom wants to kill me, but things are great, God. He's like, Absalom, my son is nuts. And I have no other word for him, God. He's like the enemy now. And you need, you need to help me with this. I have no idea what I'm going to do. And in this moment, in this psalm, you have, it's very common pattern you'll see. You'll see like the writer will call out to God and say, God, are you listening? God, are you there? And then the writer will share of the problem or of the challenge that they're facing. They're like, this is what I'm going through. And here's the fear. Our families have died. We have no money. And then there's this turning around. There's like a moment where things turn. And in the next verse in the psalm, we get this moment with David. This is what he says. Let the morning bring word of your unfailing love. I'm going to get good news. I feel it. David's like, in the morning, I'm going to hear it. Absalom just started to relax. That's what's going to happen. He's like, of your unfailing love, for I have put my trust in you. Show me the way I should go, for to you I entrust my life. David's like, in the morning, in the morning there'll be a moment where I'll, I'll, I'll hear some news that'll, that'll keep me going, that'll encourage me in the next step. And whatever happens, I need to learn to do something that all of us need to learn every day, is to entrust my life to you, God. I need to really leave this in your hands because I really have no idea how to navigate this or what to do next here. And so David writes about this and he writes, he uses this beautiful picture. Show me the way. Show me how this is going to work itself out. Show me what to do. And I want to encourage you this morning that when you read the Psalms and as you continue in the series or as you maybe do your own study or continue to read them, that the Bible points to Jesus as the ultimate example of what it means to be shown the way in these moments. The Bible invites us to look at the way Jesus lived his life as the great example of how to live through these moments in our own lives. If you just take a second and you think about it, is there a time in the life of Jesus where he feels similar feelings like David is feeling in this moment? Is there a time in the life of Jesus where he knows that at any moment he could die because time is coming to an end for him and his enemies are numerous. There's a time in the life of Jesus where we know that Jesus navigates loneliness. Like when we read about it every year around Easter, we stop and we reflect on this moment. And his disciples don't understand it at all. You know, this morning in the next few minutes, we're going to take some time and we're going to celebrate communion together. We're going to celebrate the sacred time when Jesus is with his disciples. And he's, and he's telling them, hey guys, I need to tell you something that no one's really going to understand. You ready for this? They're like, yeah, yeah, we love you, Jesus. It's great. Okay, let's eat. Let's eat. That's great. Okay, in a few minutes, when we're going to go outside, there's people who are going to come, and they're going to want to kill me. Wow. Okay, that's cool. That's cool. That's great. All right, back to the park. And they're like, that's not going to happen. We're never going to let that happen. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. And imagine Jesus is like, you guys don't get it, do you? You guys just don't get this. And what's so profound about this moment with Jesus and his disciples is that Matthew's gospel tells us that after they finish this meal, which is part of their Passover meal, they walk to a garden, and as they walk to a garden, they sing a song. And we know that one of the songs that they sing comes right from the book of Psalms. Imagine that Jesus is singing from the Psalms as he moves through the season 
of being like, I just shared with my disciples what's about to happen, the most loneliest time that I've had to go through, and they have no idea what's going to happen. They just have no, they have no framework for it. And so we're told that in the life of Jesus, as he navigates his own loneliness, like David is in the psalm, he's like, my enemies are going to kill me. And Jesus says, if there's any other way to work around this, and the Father's will needs to be done here. And he goes through this, and as he gets close to this garden, the Bible tells us that he takes three of his closest followers with him, and he's like, okay, guys, the rest of them don't understand this, but let me break it down. Okay, they're actually going to kill me soon. So we're going to go pray, and I need you guys to just pray here, and I'm going to go be with my father. And again, you have this moment where Jesus comes back and the disciples are asleep. He's like, what? Do I really have to go through this like this? We have this great model of someone who shows us how to navigate our seasons of loneliness. While we listen to the Psalms and while we call out to God and say, your grace has got to be available to me now. And I want to maybe leave you with a very simple idea as I pray and, and we turn over to communion, the simple idea that one of the most powerful examples that Jesus leaves us on how to deal with our loneliness is to learn how to be alone with the Father. And it's very counterintuitive because being alone and being lonely are not the same things. See, one of the tools of the enemy is to make us feel that when we're alone and when we're praying that really we're lonely and that God's not there. That's what happens. But Jesus says to us, and he models for us, that one of the only ways to learn how to trust God when we feel lonely is to practice being alone with the Father. He will do this countless times. Early in the morning, he will go, and he and the Father, he'll be alone there, and he'll pray, and he'll hear from God or sense God's grace and his presence for him for that day. And Jesus will go through things where he will have to rely on that presence. Why? Because he's fine with being alone, and he never confuses that with being lonely. Many of you maybe find yourself in a season where you've stopped making alone time with God a priority. Maybe you've done that because you've, I've tried. And you've quickly interpreted you being alone with God as being lonely. Not wanting to be alone, not wanting to deal with all your stuff, all the noise in your head. I'm going to encourage you maybe over the next few weeks, as the summertime maybe gives you a bit of time in your schedule, to maybe go back and read through some of these psalms alone. And to say, God, I need to develop a way of life, a way of maturity that makes me get really serious about what it means to trust you when things in my life, maybe not now, maybe not in the next few weeks, but maybe in, in the future, start to turn ugly where the only words I can think of are the words of the psalms. Where I feel like it's like enemies have gripped my life. It's like a certain cloud of a weight of pain that I have no idea what the next step will look like. And teach me what it's like to make time and be alone. And to be okay with that. Because I know something that I do whenever I get overwhelmed, and maybe it's something that you do whenever you get overwhelmed, is I choose to get busy. There's something about busyness that makes us feel like that stuff is just going to go away, I'm not listening to it, blah, 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 I'll just do more. It's fascinating. And if busy doesn't work for you, then you'll try something else. Maybe alcohol, maybe drugs, maybe food. We're getting too honest? I thought we were in the Psalms. We're in the Psalms, right? Okay, we're good. So just we look for all these other things to quench this fear, this, uh, the loneliness, the, the problems. And all along, Jesus is like, don't, don't ever believe the lie 
that any other, any other thing is ever going to deal with this, except you learning what it's like to be alone, to be alone with yourself and with the Father, and with his word, reminding you that his grace is there. This sermon, as I prepared it, was a sermon for me. I really had a few weeks, the past few weeks, where I was studying, preparing, navigating all the stuff of a new church, and being so busy, and I'm like, if I keep busy, if I keep chasing my kids, if I, and I could sense God say, it's time for you to be alone now. But I have all these things I have to do. It's time for you to put those things, it's time for you to be alone now. And so I want to encourage you this morning, as we turn our attention to listening to what Jesus says to us at that table where he models for us being alone and navigating loneliness, where his disciples have no clue what he's saying to them, that there's something powerful that God wants to say to you as you make time. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the Bayview Glen family and for the leaders, for Pastor Lucas. Pray that you would continue, Father, to equip them to make this room for honesty in a world where people oftentimes feel that in their loneliness and their sadness and their fear, they have no one to turn to. Teach us what it means to be people who model the rhythms of learning to be alone with you so that we could be the light to the people in our families, light to people in our workplaces. Teach us what it means not to confuse loneliness with being alone with you. Jesus, thank you for the sacrifice, not only of the cross, but of a way of life. You have taught us the way. You have taught us how to live these psalms. And not only were they, they your prayer book, they were a fulfillment of everything you came to do. So thank you for this time. I pray your continued wisdom for this church. May you continue to bless them as they honor you with their resources and what they're doing. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.